Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, let me pray. We'll get into it. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the many blessings you poured out on us. We thank you for this opportunity now to reflect on this psalm and ask, please, that you would help me, help me speak what is true, uh, help me speak uh, clearly in a way that uh, we can follow and understand. Please help uh, those who listen to be shaped by the words you give us. Please help us be changed by your word, understand you better, understand ourselves better, and live lives that please and honour you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, great to be together. Uh, if you, I, I don't want to presume that you remember what I say week from week, uh, or, but I mean, I always remember what you say every week. But uh, last week I started by mentioning that there are some very beautiful psalms in the book of Psalms, and the one we looked at last week was not one of those. Um, but this week I want to say to you there's some beautiful psalms in the book of Psalms, and this week's one of them. It's a fantastic, well, they're all fantastic psalms. Psalm 109 is a fantastically important psalm, a great gift from God to us. But this week, uh, it is a psalm full of encouragement. Uh, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. It's a beautiful uh, expression that's found repeated through the psalm. It's one of the psalms that's inspired great hymns down through the centuries. Christians have looked at this psalm for inspiration and help and comfort. Uh, psalm 23 is well known amongst many people, not just in church, uh, and this psalm perhaps should be better known, or at least as well known. Uh, so are you ready to be encouraged this morning by these wonderful words as we go through? But I want to say that that encouragement actually has a power to it to do something more than just encourage us. It actually has the power to take us out of ourselves and lift us above ourselves, to bring us something wonderful and great, to, do, to get under your skin and actually heal you and lift you. It will save you from what I'm going to call our cultural obsession. And it's not just an obsession in recent years, it's been an obsession for many, many years. But in recent times, it's become very foreground. The whole obsession with knowing yourself, being yourself. I don't know if you noticed, but almost every graduation, uh, you know, high school graduation, university graduation, well, I don't, TAFE has graduated, you know, every graduation, they get the group together and they say how important it is for you to be you. You just go and do you. Don't let anyone judge you. Uh, be yourself. Uh, follow your heart. And then the Disney movie plays in the background. You know, it's every school graduation. Now, the whole thing, of course, assumes you know who you are, which is a great problem for 16, 17-year-olds, isn't it? To go and tell them to go and be themselves and they go, oh, I wish I knew who I was and I'd be that, that I am. Uh, but there's another problem. It actually encourages you, to, it encourages you to fill your life with you. you know, go and be you. Makes life actually about me and me being me. My desires, my wants. And here's the thing which is not told you at the graduation ceremony. That whole path will enslave you. You'll become enslaved to you and your desires. And here's the thing. The word from God this morning is a word that will save you from yourself. By teaching us about ourselves, it'll give us some instruction about who we are actually and it'll take us into that depth. But it will lift us out of ourselves to something bigger and much better. Something bigger and much better. 
So let me come with you to Psalm 103. I want to give you four uh, thoughts on the psalm as we go through this morning. So let me just take you to the first uh, verse of the psalm and give you the first thought, which is this. We need help to get out of ourselves. We need help to be lifted out of ourselves and not be focused on ourselves. Isn't that the first couple of verses? Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but verse 1 is actually self-talk. You know that little phrase, self-talk? It's, it's, that's exactly what David's doing. He's speaking to himself and calling on himself to do something that himself is not doing. Look to God, he says, O my inmost being, pay attention. Inmost being, praise the Lord. Lift your sights. In fact, the whole psalm is about lifting your sights to be focused on God and his praise. Now that brings some issues with it, the whole idea of praise. We'll come to that in a moment. But note this first, David, who's the psalmist, David needs to tell himself to praise God. Isn't that an encouragement? David didn't just do it automatically. Not in this psalm. It didn't just happen as he was strolling along. Here's an insight actually into who we are, who you are. We have this gravity about ourselves that means as we live our lives, we slowly roll in on ourselves. It's just this natural, it's called sin. It's this natural downward tendency into ourselves being filled with thoughts about ourselves. Now, that especially happens in the context of suffering. One of the things that happens in the midst of grief, pain, suffering, is that you arise and shrink, and you and your context and world becomes dominant. Now, that's not evil. It's not like it's something to be, you know, um, beat yourself up about. But it is a dynamic that happens. And here we have David saying to his soul, himself saying to himself, step up and out. Praise the Lord. Lift your sights, O oh my soul, my innermost being. Don't be consumed with yourself. Look to God. And verse 2 gives the content, or introduces the content. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget. It's easy to forget. When you're consumed with, with all the things, it's easy to forget. But no, step back up. Think again about these benefits that have come. And this self-talk, verse 3, lists off the benefit. What are all his benefits? Well, verse 3 starts. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases and redeems you your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion? He gives this list that goes all the way down to verse 7. And then, significant, I want to pay a little bit of attention to this. When he hits verse 7, 8 and 9, he steps back into history. Now, it may not be evident to you as you're reading it the first time, but verse 7, he made his ways known to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. That's a long time before David. That's many centuries before David. But David knows about that history. And more than that, he's memorised what was said by God at that time. You keep your finger there in Psalm 103 and come back with me to Exodus 34. Come to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 records an event that happened just after the Exodus where God rescued his people out of Egypt but also after a period of judgment upon his people when they'd 
betrayed God with other gods, idolatry and so on. God's judgment came down, but then he was gracious and he spared and he freed. And, and chapter 34, Moses says to God, um, if you don't come with me, we're lost. Let me see your glory. Let me see you you're in your most glorious. And so God puts him, the Lord puts him in a rock. And what would you expect for God to show the glory? If God was to show his glory, what would you see? When's God at his most glorious? When do you, what do you see when he's most glorious? Throwing stars into the sky, creating the sun, the, the power to um, send electricity from himself or something like this. But you look at verse 9, uh, verse 6, here is the glory of God. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. There's the glory of God. His character, the God of compassion, the God of love, the gracious God, slow to anger. Now notice those words and come back to Psalm 103. You look there in verse 8. David rehearses exactly those words. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, it's worth noting that because the thing that David did to, to help him praise the Lord was preach a sermon to himself. But preach a sermon that was full of content. Do not forget his benefits. He lists the benefits and then he goes back into history. David needed help to step out of himself and we need it as well. Preach a sermon to yourself. Preach a sermon daily to yourself. Oh my soul, stop being consumed with myself. Look up, look out. But preach that sermon with substance and right there is the key to praise. What does David use to get his praise on, to get himself praising? He uses his mind. He uses his memory of God's great gifts in the past. Back to Moses. He remembers the incident of Moses. He remembers the words that God spoke to Moses. He stored them in his heart. He doesn't depend on smoke machines. He doesn't depend on lighting. He goes back in his mind to the very words of God. These have been so stored in his heart and soul. You know, um, we, we don't have a great struggle with smoke machines around the place here, but it is becoming a thing more broadly, together with all kinds of external cues that people are relying on to kind of get the emotional experience that they're searching for, that kind of tingle up and down the spine, that, that sense of the numinous where, you know, your hair stands on end and you just feel this amazing thing. Lots of people are searching for that. There's a sense in which they've cut off themselves from the spiritual world. They want to have something that touches them deeply, that gives them a sense they're involved in something bigger and better and beyond themselves. David knows he needs help to have all of that, but the place he goes to give himself that experience is the Word of God. Now, take care here. That doesn't mean there's no use for any external helps in encouraging us to praise God. It doesn't mean that all you do is go to the Word of God. 
there is a place for the gathering of God's people and the encouragement I see in each of you. There's a place for music itself. David doesn't mention music here, but you go back to Psalm 80, actually, and you uh, let me see if I can quickly find this. Psalm 80, a number of the Psalms do this. It begins with, for the director of music, to the tune of Lilies of the Covenant. Music goes along with the Word of God. These are songs. And there's a sense in which, yes, the psalmist David doesn't mention the need for music as part of his help in being able to praise God, but God's given us that gift. So it's not all, it's not rely on external things as the key to your life, but there are some things that God has given us and we're blessed to have people who lead us in music and do it well and join it together with words that those things bind so well that the words are strengthened by the music and the music strengthens the word and God uses all of that. But without denying the need for some external things, the point I want to make is that the deepest thing that David relies on The great substance that he goes to is the richness of his understanding of God and all that he has done. You know, Christians and Christianity have been chasing that feeling, the tingles. And in a church world where there's little patience with the Word of God, little patience to wrestle with the Scriptures, you haven't got much left except smoke machines. You need to rely on all the extra stuff. And the gift of this psalm is that there will be a day when you find yourself in the hospital bed and you don't have all that other. There'll be a day when a disease will come through our world and stop you being able to meet with God's people, where you won't have the crowd. There'll be a day like that that happens. How will you be drawn out of yourself to praise God? Store up in your heart the great truths of God. David did the same. We need help. Let me, secondly, getting out of ourselves is our maturity, our health, and our life. This is a psalm that calls for praise. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. In fact, later uh, he says, he finishes the psalm in verse 22 with praise the Lord, my soul, calling to himself to praise God as well. But you'll see there in verse 20, 21 and 22 that the psalmist David calls on everyone to praise God. Praise the angels, you praise God. Praise the Lord, all you heavenly hosts. Praise the Lord, all his works. Everyone's meant to be gathered around God and praising God. Now, does that raise a problem for you? It has for many people. This emphasis on praising God has often caused people to ask a question, which is, what is it with Christianity and praise? Actually, more deeply, what is it with God that he needs this praise? Have you ever sensed that kind of question? Uh, You do hear it kind of amongst the new atheists and so on. Um, Now, some of you never have. You've never even thought about it. You've never even wondered why it was a problem. You instinctively have a sense that you ought and it makes perfect sense. But other people have raised the question. And, and uh, perhaps the one who is engaged with this in my reading of, uh, little reading is a man called C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was an atheist, uh, eventually converted. But as an atheist, he did look on at the Christian world and have some disdain for it, you know, look down his nose at it because 
He, you know, he saw this kind of concept of a, a God with this crowd of people praising, praising him. And he got this picture of the, the insecure celebrity needing sycophants around them, kind of always just boasting and boosting their ego up, God's ego up. And he thought, found himself despising the God that needed all of that praise. Now, of course, God doesn't need our praise. But C.S. Lewis reflected on... Uh, when he became a Christian, he was convinced by the evidence eventually to become a Christian and, and wonderfully converted. In fact, just this last week, to give you news, another person's been converted. We've just had news of someone who's given their life to Christ this week, so that's fantastic. But uh, he reflected on these things and was persuaded, actually, that praise is deeply important. And let me give you some of his observations. This is not his exact words, but he said, praise always emerges from a healthy person when confronted with things that are praiseworthy. Praise always emerges from a healthy person when confronted with things that are praiseworthy. You know, you hear a story about a mother who at great cost saves a child heroically and you want to tell people about it. If you're into Instagram, you'll post it on Instagram. I don't know how you do that, but if you're older and you're into Facebook, you'll post it there. You want to tell your friends about this extraordinary thing that happened. Let me give you a surfing one. We've got a poster in one of our rooms of a wave that was ridden in early 2000 by a man called Laird Hamilton. It's of a beach break, a reef break in Tahiti called Chopu. And it's the most dangerous, well, one of the most dangerous waves on the planet. And this was the first time that wave had been successfully ridden by someone during a storm swell. And it is a monster wave, massively hollow, and an extraordinary picture. But here's the deal. When that event happened, the surfing world went ballistic. It, it, uh, it, it ended up on the front pages of magazines. It, there was a movie made of it. People shared the astonishing thing that happened and looked at how he did it and so on. Because... There was an event to make history. It was called the wave of the millennium. Praise is what emerges when you see things of astonishing merit. It's what happens for natural people, healthy people. Did you, um, did you see the storm clouds over this last week? Who noticed the, uh, the swirling clouds and so on that came through? Uh, we, were at, we were in a house and I was sitting in, inside, uh, TV was there and Kathy was out on the veranda and, um, and she was standing out there watching the swirling uh, clouds coming across and saying, uh, oh, you've got to come and look at this, this is amazing and she was just hanging there in it all. Now what do you think I said? It's going to be on the news in a moment, I'll watch it then. <laughs> um, which one was healthy? <laughs> You know, there's a, there, it's a sign of human health and wholeness and emotional maturity that great things are praised and not critiqued, not found fault with all the time. It's a sign of maturity and emotional health that you can see astonishing things and want to share. See, here's the thing, the person who does not rejoice in a spectacular mountain scene needs to grow up. The person who does not rejoice in a feat of incredible bravery and not want to praise it needs to grow up. 
That person is not acting free and strong and independent. They're showing actually that they're less than human. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says they're not awake. They're crippled. They're tone deaf. To praise, he says, is to enter the greatest experience. It's to enter the real world. It's to wake up and grow up. Psalm 103, it's one man who had seen the greatest, most captivating thing, the most captivating person, the being with the character that is of infinite glory and worth in the universe. It is the man who had seen that and he preaches to himself, look, open your mind to it. Praise this God. All the universe Praise this God. You know, C.S. Lewis adds another wonderful insight. He notes that praise completes the experience. It's a beautiful little insight. He says praise completes the experience. If you've had an extraordinary experience, that you get to actually speak of it to another actually fills it up. It actually brings it around in a whole circle. It it, it, It multiplies and magnifies it. And here is, in a sense, God calling humanity to a richness and fullness of not only seeing him in all his glory, but then praising him and knowing the joy of completing that experience. There's a sense in which this psalm is a word to us negatively. What's wrong with us that we don't praise God? Why are we missing out on what he intends for us? God is saying to you this morning to enter into your joy and your fullness, to find the freedom to express what is true and great and good. There's a sense in which God is saying praise is not not what I need, it's what I'm giving you as a gift to enter into the richness of a human kind and what's meant for you in the fullness of life under me and in my glory. You see, here's the power of the psalm, actually. It's a deep reflection on the beauty of God that when you get up and out of yourself and see the fact that we need forgiveness, but see then that God has given us forgiveness, what response can you have but praise? Jesus says something like this when he says, the one who's been forgiven much loves much. The lack of praise in a Christian's life is evidence of a failure to appreciate how much we've been forgiven. You know, Christianity is a religion of song. I don't know if you realise this, but most other religions don't sing. They, they might chant, they might have meditative things to get them into an empty-minded state, and so on, but most other religions don't sing. Christianity is a singing religion. Why? Because what we hold to, what we believe in, what we've seen and experienced is too good for just words. It needs to be sung. See, the first thing this morning, we need help to get ourselves praising God. David did. You need to preach a sermon to yourself. Second, getting out of ourselves to be people of praise is the pathway to maturity, health, life. We will see the greatness of who God is and be filled with praise for him. That's maturity, that's wholeness. Third, getting out of yourself is looking to God his gifts and his character. 
Come with me now a little bit more through the psalm and see this emerge. You see, sing verse 2, sing praise to him, tell of his wonderful acts. He's a great psalm as well. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he lists his benefits. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. Let me offer this. The chief of the benefits that he offers is forgiveness. Verse 3. The benefits God gives us, he forgives all your sins. He repeats this numbers of times through the psalm. You get it down there in verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities. Imagine a God who does not judge us as we deserve. who does not hold our sin against us. Verse 11, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? It's immeasurable. That's the point. It's poetry to capture the, the, the greatness and the magnitude and the dimensions of God's gift to us. God has forgiven our transgressions and sins. He gives also the benefits that God has given us in physical terms. You come and look there at verse 3. He forgives all our sins, there's a spiritual blessing, and he heals all your diseases. There's a physical one. Now, I know many people have looked at the second half of verse 3 and suggested... It really is another way of talking about forgiving sins, that the diseases that the psalmist David has in mind is the disease of sin. But I I can't see that given verse 4 and 5. This is the God who redeems your life from the pit. The pit that's being talked about there is death. And so to be redeemed from death is a physical gift. It's a physical gift of resurrection. And verse 5 there, he satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, if any of you are older, to have your youth renewed like the eagles is, is what? Is that a spiritual thing or a physical one? It's physical. It's, it's to actually be strengthened again. In the Old Testament, there are many occasions where God expresses the promise that coming to him will build, bring spiritual and physical healing. Now, our question, of course, today is, does that mean if you become a Christian, you won't get sick? You won't get cancer? You won't have illnesses? You will be, there's healing in the atonement, many have said. Is that what that means? Now, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 1. This issue around God's promises of physical healing is in a number of places through the Old Testament. Here's how I think about it. The Old Testament also has clear teaching that you will not be healed from all your diseases. The book of Job is written to demonstrate that there is not a simple formula that says if you trust God, you'll always live in prosperity, wealth and health. The Bible has this richness about its presentation. The Old Testament has almost this tension that exists and it's resolved as you come into the New Testament. And the resolution of the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 1. The chief blessing, the core blessing, the greatest gift that you can be given by God is forgiveness. Is the spiritual reconciliation that comes between you and him. But there does come a day when Christ returns, when the healing physically that is promised in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. There is healing in the atonement, spiritual Physical, spiritual now, physical finally, with tastes of that physical now. 
There's a richness to God's engagement with us. He will renew you. He will strengthen you. He will satisfy your desires with good things, not just what you want, but with the things that are best. He'll do that now. But he'll fulfil it in his return. He lifts us out of ourselves to see his gifts, forgiveness, healing ultimately. But he also, the psalmist also lifts us up to see God himself, the one who gives us these gifts. You come with me and look at this, look at verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. This is who God is. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Yes, the Old Testament has expressions of God bringing his judgment against cities and peoples and nations and the world around us is very keen to point these out about how cruel God must be that he's done that. What they fail to appreciate is the longer story, that those occasions happen after generations of patience from a God who's slow to anger, who wants to be compassionate and loving. But when confronted with evil, will eventually judge. But he's slow to do that. He is the God, verse 9, who won't always accuse nor harbour his anger. That's the God he is, verse 11. He's the God who is so loving that his love for us is as high as the heavens above the earth. Verse 13. He's like a father who has compassion on his children. That's the Lord who has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we're formed. He remembers that we're dust. Now, I'm conscious that as I use that language of fatherhood, that some of you are finding yourself, um, is he like my father? I don't want him to be like my father was. Some of you had a father who was abusive. And the thought that God might be like a father like that is terrifying. No, 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 no. Even you in that context, tragic though that is, Know that there's something wrong there. But fathers are meant to be otherwise. And what David reflects on is the father that God models for us is the great father. The father of compassion. The father, verse 14, who knows how we're formed. Do you know good parenting? Good fathers ought to be compassionate to their children and also Deal with their children according to the stage of life they're at. Do you, do you know, how do you, how do you relate to a five-year-old who's left his bike at the park and had it stolen? How do you relate to the five-year-old who's done that and the 25-year-old who's borrowed the car and forgotten to put petrol in it? You deal differently, yeah? With the five-year-old who's left his bike and had it stolen, it's a five-year-old. You don't punish them for that. It's a childish mistake. But a 25-year-old who's not filled up the car with petrol, what do you do there? Give them the bike that was from the park. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, there's, there's a kind of, there's a different thing that goes on. And he, the, the, the glory of God the Father is the one who has compassion. And he has compassion on us. And he knows that we're, we're not we're made of dust. He doesn't expect us to be gods. He knows of what we're made. Don't beat up on yourself because God doesn't. Do you know? God understands the baggage that you've got and he understands the history that you've come through and how that all impacts you and what it means for you now. God is gracious and compassionate. That's the God of the Bible. What a beautiful God. 
Now, this is a remarkable catalogue of blessings. They're gospel blessings, actually. Gospel blessings before the New Testament. These gospel blessings of forgiveness in Jesus are made, of course, concrete and clear with the coming of Jesus, who comes to die in our place and make it possible for a holy God to forgive and cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. But what you have here, God has given to David an anticipation of that final work that he'll bring in Jesus. And here's the thing with this, if you have ever doubted that God is like Psalm 103, look at the cross. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, God demonstrates his own love for us. In that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Three things so far. We need help to get our blessing, our praise on. David did, we do. We need to preach ourselves sermons. But that praise, that life of praise, is the fully mature adult. It's the, it's the grown-up. It's finally coming. It's a beautiful thing to pursue. Third thing is that the content of the psalm is the means by which you're able to speak to yourself and encourage and nurture praise in yourself. Fourth, through all of this, it's quite likely there's a question forming in your mind. The whole power of this psalm to evoke you to praise God, to pull you out of yourself that you might start praising God, hangs on a critical thing. You see, David praises God because his sins are forgiven. He praises God that God has been a father to him, who's been compassionate. Now, David, of all people, knows the power of being forgiven. He was the adulterer who murdered the... He, he knows that God has forgiven me and that every re- remembrance of every re- recollection is a full of praise for David. But doesn't that raise a question for you? This is all true for David, but how do I know it's true for me? How do I know it's true for me? You see, this speaks into a kind of contemporary problem. We've got a contemporary problem at the moment, which is that people in our community imagine that God is love and will love everybody and accept everybody. It doesn't matter what you do. But that's not the Bible. And it couldn't be. We looked at this last week. God has to judge if there's to be righteousness and truth in the world, in the universe. God cannot just sweep everyone's sin under the carpet. And that's not what this is saying. So who is this for, this love, this forgiveness, these blessings? Who is it for? David tells you three times. Look there in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. He says it again there in verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He says it again in verse 17. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. The psalmist is making a couple of big points. The first one is that this love is not for everybody. It's only for those that fear him. The second thing is, it is for those that fear him. And my final point is this. Getting out of ourselves, lifting ourselves up, to be free of ourselves, to 
know the joy of praise and the glory that's to be found in God starts with healthy fear. It starts with healthy fear. David is very clear about this. But I must confess to thinking, and I've tested this with a few other people through the week, that there is something odd about using that word in this context. You've got a whole psalm about forgiveness and grace and compassion and love, the God who's the compassionate Father, the God who's slow to anger. Why should I ever be afraid of him? Isn't that exactly the point of the psalm? Is to actually Doesn't love cast out fear? Why is the condition to receive all of this based on fear? That seems odd. And it seems, in our, again, cultural context, it seems demeaning, it seems primitive. Um, no, no, no. Spirituality is all about experiencing beautiful, loving emotions without any fear. That's not biblical Christianity. Now, why is it so that fear is so critical? I'll give you my sense of it. Because the first step out of yourself is the recognition that there's a power outside of us and over us. The first step towards health, to mature insight, is that we as humans are not accidents. We didn't just appear through evolutionary chance. We are the consequence of the will of someone with such immense power, such extraordinary scale and magnitude, that he was able, by a word, to create from nothing. To create the universe, to create life in all its richness, to create conscious beings as complex as humans. And the beginning of wisdom is to see that a God who has achieved that is a God who towers over us. He is a God of immense power. And the beginning of wisdom there is to fear that God. Because wisdom, wisdom is facing reality, acknowledging reality and making right choices within it. And the right choice to make in the context of a God of such immensity is to bow the knee. It's to acknowledge with humility that he is the great God. Now this psalm celebrates those things. If you've got the eyes to see it, it's all the way through the psalm. But let's just pick it up with you at verse 19. The Lord, Yahweh, has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is God, the sovereign Lord of the universe. In fact, verse 20, he calls on the angels to praise this one, but he calls the angels, you mighty ones, who do his bidding. The angels themselves are terrifying. But they are only servants to do the bidding of Yahweh. And then it's all the heavenly hosts who would appraise God. Now the word host can be translated armies. It's God's armies who are servants, but armies under the Lord's hand. Praise the Lord all his works everywhere in his dominion. David is very clear that the God that he praises is a God of such power and greatness and majesty and immensity that he is humbled before him, that he comes trembling before this God, not in abject terror, but in a deep awareness of the otherness of God. The proper response to all of this is to bow the knee and submit to this God. Modern spirituality, of course, just wants good feelings. It doesn't want to acknowledge that there might be a God that we owe something to, that we're bound by, 
that we're controlled by. But the Bible is very clear. But then we're left with how, though, do these things go together? How does it go together that I fear God and yet praise God for his compassion and love? that feels so safe and secure. How do I do both those things? Now, I haven't got the words for it. I've got a picture. Let me show you this. that give you the answer? How do you both fear and be safe? That's a picture of a walking trail in the Italian Alps. And it's got a name. It's called the Bacchetti... Centrale via ferrata. I got no clue how to pronounce it, I just said it then, right? Forgive me. But that is an extraordinary pathway, isn't it? Many parts of it, as you can see, uh, there's hundreds of metres of just empty space as you walk along that tiny pathway. Um, now, how do you think a person walks on that pathway? Very carefully, with great fear. But here's the thing. If you're on the path, are you safe? Absolutely. It even has a handrail built into the rock wall. Because that pathway has been hewn out of the rock itself. It's as solid as the rock is immense. And if you stay on the pathway, you're safe, you're secure, you're confident. Um, but the path isn't alongside a meadow. It's on the side of a mountain with sheer drops. And the mountains themselves are inspiring for their scale and their strength and power. They're humbling themselves. The beginning of a wisdom is to respect the mountain, fear the mountain. But when you're on the path... Know you're safe. Did you see what I'm trying to capture here? The very reason the psalmist is driven to praise is because the God who has revealed himself is the God of love. Who is that God? The towering great God of the universe. He's the one who redeems a person out of the pit, who forgives us all our sins. It's that God who does that, which means it's been done. You see, the power and safety of the path is because it's cut out of that rock. And the fact that God, that God, is a father to those that fear him is electrifying. You are not loved by some puny, pathetic deity from the Middle East. You are loved by the God of the universe. You know, uh, there's a path from here down to McDonald's. Or Erin Affair, wherever you want to go, I don't care, right? But there's a path from here down here, built by the council. So it's good, right? And uh, I'm glad it's there. But, it, but here's the deal. As you walk down the path towards McDonald's, who of you are taking selfies of yourself going down there to show your friends? Look at the path I'm walking on. But I tell you what, if you walked on that pathway, would you take a selfie doing it? No. <laughs> But I'd make sure someone did take a photo of me doing it because, well, I want to tell it, I want to show everybody. It is praiseworthy. You wouldn't shut me up if I walked on that pathway. I'd want to tell the world about what, what that experience was like. To know the God of the universe, the God of power, strength, 
holiness, to know that that God is a father to me because I fear him. To know that that God is full of compassion to me because by his grace I've bowed the knee to him. I've humbled myself to him. To know that that God is slow to anger, who understands of what I made. If cast my sins from east to west, to know that that God has done all of that means I'm safe. I've got nothing to fear. I am secure. There's no threat in life that compares to the safety and security I have in God. When this God sets his heart on you, you will never be put to shame. You look at the language there of verse 17. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those that fear him. There's strength in those words. Brothers and sisters, do you know this God? Do you know this God? You'll know you know him if you bow the knee to him. If you brought yourself before him aware of the immensity, the power, the towering reality of this God and you've humbled yourself before him and you've thrown yourself on his mercy, if you've done that, you're in. You're safe. You're on the pathway. And so, O our souls, praise him. Tell yourself to praise the Lord because he's worthy of your praise. What a great gift he's given us to know him. What a great gift he's given us to participate in praising him that it might complete the joy we have in knowing him the richness of it. Bow the knee and praise. Forgiven, sins cast. You're an object of love. You know, David didn't know how all of this was possible. We do. We've seen the cost it was to God to gift us in such a way. We've seen Jesus' death on our behalf. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We know what he's done for us. So praise him. Get out of yourself. Tell your soul to think on the benefits of God, to see who he is again, to see the blessings he's given you and lift yourself up to find the joy of praising him. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we do ask that that might be the case for us, that we might praise you, that we might know you, be filled with remembrance of all the things you are and all that you've done that you might help us be lifted out of ourselves to praise you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.